Welcome to Israel Week in Review. My name is Ben Ronsman. Today we are bringing you one of our signature deep dive programs, going deeper and providing you with in-depth analysis that goes beyond the headlines. This program is available on YouTube. Please like and subscribe. This helps ensure that we can continue to provide you with intelligent analysis, exploring the history and dynamics shaping Israel and the Middle East. Israel Week in Review and our deep dives are also found in an audio format anywhere that quality podcasts can be found. You can also find us at IsraelWeekinReview.com. There you will find both audio and video, as well as additional materials that cannot be found elsewhere. At the end of this program, please listen to the messages from our sponsors. By supporting our sponsors, you help to ensure that this program is able to continue to be produced. Israel recently concluded a major conflict with Palestinian Islamic Jihad militants in the Gaza Strip. The fighting lasted for a mere three days, from August 5th through the 7th. Let's break down the five most important takeaways from this conflict. First, a little background information is in order. This round of fighting was against a group known as the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. So who are they? Well, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, I'm going to call them PIJ going forward, was founded in Gaza in 1981. It's a Sunni Muslim movement that, like Hamas, is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. However, unlike many other movements that stem from the Sunni Muslim Brotherhood, the PIJ was greatly influenced by the Islamic Revolutionary Government of Iran. Despite the fact that the Iranians are Shia, the successful overthrow of an established government with important ties to the West, and the founding of a government based on Islamic principles inspired many Islamist movements, both Sunni and Shia. When the PIJ was founded soon after the 1979 Iranian Revolution, it began with a sense of admiration for that revolution. It was also seen as an instrument of Iran's revolutionary government, who funded the group from its outset. The funding of militant groups throughout the Middle East remains a fixture of Tehran's foreign policy today. The fighting was initially triggered by the arrest of the head of PIJ's West Bank operations, Bassam al-Sadi, in the Palestinian city of Jenin on August 1st. This happened while the leader of the PIJ, Jihad Ziad al-Nakhla, was visiting Tehran. Al-Nakhla met with much of the top leadership of the Iranian regime during his trip, including the supreme leader of Iran, Ali Khamenei. He was also a close confidant of Qasem Soleimani, the former leader of Iran's Quds Force, specializing in support for Iranian-supported proxy groups operating outside of Iran. Incidentally, Al-Quds is the Islamic name for Jerusalem. For the Hebrew speakers out there, Quds is a cognate word with Kodesh, holiness. It's a way of saying holy city. It's also a way of indicating the centrality that the liberation of Jerusalem for the Muslim world plays in Iran's foreign policy and Islamic self-conception. Now the growth of Hezbollah, the cultivation of loyal militias in Iraq, and the coordination with the Houthi rebels in Yemen were all part of Soleimani's portfolio. And Soleimani was amongst the most powerful leaders in Iran, until that is he met his end at the end of an American airstrike. Remember, it took place towards the end of the Trump administration at the Baghdad International Airport. Soleimani was actively supporting Iranian-backed militias in Iraq while visiting the country. In fact, the current political crisis in Iraq is largely a result of disagreements between Iranian-backed proxies, who seek to turn Iraq into a wholly-owned subsidiary of neighboring Iran, and the Shiite cleric Muqtad al-Sadr, who retains an important power base in and around Baghdad and retains the loyalty of millions of Iraqi Shiites. Al-Sadr and his father are fascinating characters in their own right, and are possible subjects for upcoming deep dives. 
In any case, Mukhtar al-Sadr remains highly skeptical of total Iranian domination. How the situation in Iraq will ultimately shake out is anyone's guess. Now, funding, training, and arming Iranian-backed proxies throughout the region is the cornerstone of Iran's foreign policy and military doctrine. These groups are considered Iran's advanced forces. So it's not coincidental that al-Nakhla was in Iran. This conflict has implications far beyond Gaza. In the short term, of course, it's about the immediate safety of Israel citizens in the region adjacent to Gaza. It's also about preventing the further entrenchment of an Iranian proxy on Israel's borders. So to that end, Israel has been trying to inflict painful blows on PIJ that prevent it from strengthening its position. PIJ is based in Damascus, but has field leaders in the West Bank, but especially Gaza. So during al-Nakhla's visit to Iran, Israel captured the head of the PIJ in the West Bank, Bassam al-Sadi. After the arrest, it seemed that Iran wanted to deliver some sort of retribution, and there was intelligence that seemed to indicate that PIJ was planning attack in and around the Gaza envelope, those Jewish communities in the immediate vicinity of Gaza. All the communities in the Israeli Gaza envelope were placed on high alert. Traffic was closed down, a high alert was put out, and people were advised to stay in or near bomb shelters. Life in Israel's south stayed like this for five days, and many Israelis in the region began to complain that it was an intolerable situation. Moreover, there was concern that acting Prime Minister Yair Lapid, with his limited military background, was not taking a proactive stance to remove the threat. This concern was later proved to be false. In the five days of lockdown in the south, Israel was actively planning Operation Breaking Dawn. As mentioned earlier, fighting commenced on August 5th and ended on August 7th. Now here are the five most important takeaways from this conflict. Takeaway number one. Operation Breaking Dawn can only be classified as a major tactical success. Israel has seemed to have achieved all of its objectives in the fighting. Consider that the entire top leadership of the PIJ in the West Bank and Gaza was either captured or killed in the early days of August. So, on August 1st, al-Sadi, who headed PIJ operations in the West Bank, was arrested. A few short days later, when airstrikes commenced on August 5th, a man by the name of Taiser al-Jabri was killed. He was the Palestinian Islamic Jihad leader in the northern Gaza Strip. Interestingly, he was appointed to his role after his predecessor, Baha Abu Alata, was killed in an Israeli airstrike in 2019. He had been responsible for rocket strikes against the Israeli city of Sterot, Netivot, and other cities in and around the Gaza envelope. The IDF spokesman's unit was kind enough to provide video of the strike that killed Al-Jabri. PIJ Gaza Southern District was commanded by Khaled Mansour until he too found his way to the wrong end of an Israeli missile strike. According to the IDF spokesman's unit, 170 Palestinian Islamic Jihad targets were struck in 66 hours. These were predetermined targets selected by the IDF and included strikes against field commanders in the PIJ, PIJ bases, attack tunnels, weapons factories, weapons storage depots, and the like. There can be no doubt that PIJ was significantly diminished during the course of the fighting. Takeaway number two. Israel's global standing in the world has increased, and this is having real-world consequences. 
In the past, virtually any conflict of this scope would receive top billing in the media, usually in a highly unflattering light for Israel. However, this go-around, things seemed to be a bit different. Mainstream media coverage was so light that you almost could have missed it. It should be noted that on the first two days of the conflict, PIJ launched 449 rockets at Israeli cities. Fully one-third of these rockets fell short of their intended targets in Israel and landed in the Gaza Strip itself. Of the approximately 1,100 rockets launched by PIJ over the course of three days, it's estimated that 15% misfired and landed within the Gaza Strip. According to the IDF, majority of the civilians killed in this conflict were actually killed by PIJ rockets, not the Israeli Defense Forces. Israel's targets were carefully predetermined through a great deal of intelligence work. Extreme care was taken to reduce civilian deaths. These were all military targets placed in a highly dense urban area. But what did Palestinian casualties actually look like? There were 49 Palestinians killed in the attacks in total. 13 of those dead were the militants themselves. 16 children were killed. According to Israeli reports and video evidence, 12 of those children were killed by misfired Palestinian rockets. The Israelis also contend that over half of the total civilian deaths were caused by the PIJ themselves. On the first day of the war, a PIJ missile misfired at a densely populated area in the northern Gaza Strip named Jabalia. Four children were killed in that particular attack. The Palestinians brought reporters to the area and tried to leverage the deaths in a public relations campaign against Israel. Historically, these have been very successful. However, just as the first reports of this attack were aired, Israel released video evidence of the misfire as it flew into Jabalia. This video was released by the IDF. In previous wars, whether Israel's defense was credible or not, much of the media machine would immediately accuse Israel of callous disregard for civilian life and the use of disproportionate force. However, in this instance, much of the media accepted Israel's evidence, and the story was corrected. This may not sound like much, but historically a great deal of the media coverage has been much more interested in presenting a particular narrative, irrespective of the facts. We see this in a variety of ways, to varying degrees, amongst various different news outlets. In recent days, a freelancer working for the New York Times was fired for tweeting absolutely genocidal wishes for the Jewish people. There were supposed Hitler quotes galore, and an insistence that Palestinians were required to embark on a war of extermination, targeting every Jewish man, woman, and child. Now, to their credit, this man was fired from the New York Times when these tweets came to light. But how many other journalists, fixers, reporters, freelancers, and photographers reporting on the region today hold deeply hostile opinions towards Israel? Certainly, most of the folks in the media are much more cautious and level-headed than the aforementioned photographer. But perceptive media consumers today realize that much of the media operate from a guiding principle. This unspoken principle is that Israel is successful and strong. The Palestinians have failed politically and are weak. Ipso facto, Israel is the guilty party because success and strength are the result of oppression. Moreover, this false narrative argues that Israel is a white country and that Palestinians are people of color. This is despite the fact that on the whole, it's pretty difficult and often impossible for outside observers unfamiliar with Hebrew or Arabic to determine who is Jewish and who is Arab. This Manichaean worldview is simplistic and false. However, dogmatic leftist impulses, not the late great liberal tradition, these leftist impulses have made alarming inroads amongst educated opinion leaders the world over. Some ideas are so stupid that you have to attend university in order to believe them. A few recent examples may be instructive here. 
In 2017, Swedish politician Lars Adaktusen claimed that when he was working as a reporter for Swedish broadcaster SVT during Israel's 2006 war against Hezbollah and Hamas on both fronts, he was based in Jerusalem incidentally, all staff were explicitly told to only report on Israeli attacks and to avoid speaking about Hezbollah rocket attacks against Israel. Journalistic ethics such as these are not in short supply these days. But the media response during this conflict did not fall into the historical pattern. By and large, the major media outlets actually accepted Israel's evidence and did not run with the false story. This is in large part due to the effectiveness of Israel's media response and the extraordinary video evidence presented by Israel. But there's more to it than that. Now this time around, one could see that Israel's alliances with the Arab countries of the region have made a difference. Remember, those powers also fear various Iranian-supported militant groups who continue to operate against them as well. Criticism against Israel was generally muted by all the governments in the region, aside from Turkey, Syria, and Iran. But Israel's budding new Arab allies did much more than just mute their criticism. Egypt and Qatar actively intervened to keep Hamas out of the fighting. Egypt also brokered the ceasefire ending the conflict. Things are genuinely changing in the region, and Israel has grown in stature and influence. Takeaway number three. Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system has changed the military calculus completely. According to the Israel Army Spokesman's Unit, the system performed with a remarkable 97% effectiveness rating. Despite 1,100 rockets being launched in highly dense population centers in Israel, there were zero deaths on the Israeli side. Of course, one should not minimize the plight of families in the south sleeping in bomb shelters, or the air raid sirens that sent people in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem scrambling for shelter. But the fact remains that no Israelis were killed. The decades-long strategy for assembling massive missile arsenals on Israel's borders in Lebanon, Syria, and Gaza has been checked. And Israel also tested its cutting-edge iron beam anti-missile system in this conflict. By all accounts, the results were excellent, and it is projected that this additional layer of laser defense will be operational in 2023. To understand the development of the Iron Dome system, one has to consider Israel's war against Hezbollah, Hamas, and Palestinian Islamic Jihad in 2006. That war exposed tremendous vulnerabilities for Israel. During that conflict, 1,247 missiles landed in Israel, causing death, damage, and the shutting down of the country for weeks on end. The Iranian strategy was to amass these massive missile arsenals on Israel's borders and to bring the country to its knees from massive missile barrages that Israel could not counter. Remember, there was no Iron Dome missile defense system at this time. This rocket fire required a ground invasion of Lebanon in order to destroy the missile launching sites. This conflict was widely panned by Israelis and there were widespread reports of logistical and communications breakdowns. In addition to the death of 121 soldiers and the wounding of 1,244 more, 46 civilians on the Israeli side were killed and 1,384 were wounded. These sobering figures do not take into account the enormous damage to apartment buildings, businesses, and other infrastructure. The Iranian noose around Israel seemed to be tightening. When Israel weighs the risk of collateral damage amongst Palestinians, these are the facts that decision makers in Israel consider. Israel may be strong in many ways, but its complete lack of any strategic depth also make it incredibly vulnerable as well. But there are lessons to be learned in any military engagement, and Israel began to invest heavily in missile defense at this time. A joint missile defense project was initiated with the United States. 
although the bulk of the research and development was conducted by Israel. Israel's setbacks in the 2006 war against Hezbollah and Hamas gave birth to the Iron Dome missile defense system. This is a technological and military achievement that has stripped the Iranians and their proxies of their greatest strategic military asset. Iron Dome is a game changer. Its significance in this conflict cannot be overstated. Takeaway number four. Hamas did not enter the conflict in support of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. The relationship between these two groups, both ideologically tied to the Muslim Brotherhood and committed in word and deed to the destruction of Israel, requires a bit more exploration. As mentioned earlier, both Hamas and PIJ have similar goals and methods. However, Hamas is responsible for running the day-to-day -day operations in the Gaza Strip. They have to keep the lights on, the water flowing, and perhaps most importantly, they would have to deal with the brunt of the damage from any full-scale Israeli assault. Hamas is still repairing the damage from their 2021 conflict with Israel. Economically, Israel has gone to great lengths to allow Gazan workers to enter Israel. The money that is made by these workers in Israel is often many times that possible to be made in Gaza itself. The moribund Palestinian economy requires this money in order to help Gazans make ends meet. These workers in Israel often support very large extended families with the money they earn. And since the end of the conflict, the number of Gazan workers in Israel has tripled. Hamas was very reluctant to close down this source of much needed funding. While Hamas and PIJ have very similar ideologies, PIJ is viewed as being more hardline. While both avowedly seek the destruction of Israel, the PIJ has criticized Hamas for even running in Palestinian legislative elections. Because these elections are the result of the Oslo Accords, the PIJ views any participation in such elections as a compromise with the Zionist entity. For PIJ, the only legitimate interaction with Israel is resistance and war. And that is precisely what they got. In the past, Hamas has viewed PIJ as a useful tool in its arsenal. They could allow the PIJ to attack Israel with rockets, while simultaneously denying that they were responsible for those rockets. This was a technique pioneered by the late Yasser Arafat, who used Hamas in a similar manner. When he wanted to pressure Israel militarily, he could allow Hamas suicide bombers to attack Israeli civilian centers and simultaneously proclaim that his own hands were clean. Israel's position on this has been that Hamas is the governing authority in Gaza and that any attacks on Israel from that territory would be blamed on Hamas. In this conflict, however, Israel exposed the fissures between these two groups and assured the Hamas leadership that as long as they did not enter the conflict, Hamas would be left untouched. Tension between Hamas and PIJ became evident during the height of the Syrian civil war. During that time, Iran allied itself closely with the Syrian regime, and the crack troops fighting on the side of the Assad government were largely Hezbollah ground forces, with Russian air support for good measure. The Iranians, through their Hezbollah proxy, were fighting against a range of Sunni militias, some of them loyal to the Islamic State, or Daesh. This heightened the Sunni-Shiite divide, and Hamas began to cool on its alliance with Iran. Now, we're not talking about a break with Iran here, but Hamas had a great deal of trepidation aligning with Iran in Syria against their Sunni allies. Now, the PIJ had no qualms about siding with Shiite Iran in this conflict, and rifts between the two parties began to be noticed. It needs to be repeated that this was not a total break with Iran or PIJ. Iran still provides Hamas with military support. However, PIJ is tied at the hip to Iran. 
they work in lockstep with the Iranian regime. Hamas, on the other hand, still receives considerable funding from Iran, but now also receives more diverse sources of funding. Their current major benefactor is the Gulf state of Qatar. Israel has worked behind the scenes with the Qataris in order to keep this lifeline to Hamas open. And it was the Qataris and the Egyptians who worked behind the scenes in order to encourage Hamas to stay out of the fight. And it was the Egyptians who ultimately brokered the ceasefire that ended the conflict itself. Qatar made continued financial support for Hamas contingent on staying out of the fight. After all, they don't want to pledge billions of dollars every year or two in order to rebuild the Gaza Strip. And much to PIJ's great frustration, Hamas opted to stay out. So in addition to damaging PIJ's operational abilities in significant ways, Operation Breaking Dawn has likely further widened the rift between Hamas and PIJ and Hamas and Iran. Takeaway number five, Iran is Israel's most significant military threat. This conflict cannot be discussed without placing it in the context of the broader conflict involving Iran, Israel, and Israel's allies in the Gulf. Like in the days of the Cold War, various global conflicts had both a local dynamic and a larger geopolitical dynamic. This is very much the case throughout the region today. Iran came away from this conflict a loser. Their proxy failed to inflict any major damage to Israel, and the PIJ was significantly weakened. This is not to suggest that the Iranians are down for the count, of course. There are a number of regional dynamics that they will continue to press in order to advance their goals. Hezbollah remains by far the strongest party in Lebanon. If they chose, they could overrun the entire Lebanese army in a matter of days. But they don't want to do this. Now they can operate as an independent military group and don't have the responsibility for running a state. A notoriously multi-confessional and divided state at that. Hezbollah is currently trying to scuttle talks between Israel and Lebanon over rights to natural gas fields in the Mediterranean. Natural gas revenues would be a much needed lifeline for the long-suffering people of Lebanon. But it seems that despite the wishes of most of the population, Iran will not allow Lebanon to engage in any recognition of Israel whatsoever, even indirectly. There's rumbling in Lebanon from many non-Shiites who feel that Hezbollah places a higher premium on hurting the Zionist entity rather than helping their fellow Lebanese. The situation there remains tense. Now for Iraq. Iraq is a multi-ethnic and multi-confessional country with a Shiite majority. There, Shiite forces allied with Iran are in conflict with those of Shiite cleric Muqtada al-Sadr, who is suspicious of Iran's attempts to take over the country. The situation there is highly unstable as well. The Houthi rebels in Yemen are funded by Iran as well. That war has been an absolute humanitarian disaster. Upwards of 150,000 people have died. The Iranians have also used Yemeni territory to attack Saudi Arabia and its oil infrastructure. There again, they have credited Houthis with these highly sophisticated drone attacks. But anyone familiar with the ragtag Houthi movement understands that those attacks eclipse the Houthis' operational capabilities. Iran has been directly attacking Saudi Arabia. Both sides understand this, but neither wants to admit it openly. There's talk that the conflict there may settle into something of a detente in the fall. This remains to be seen. And Syria is the scene of some of Israel's greatest concerns. The Iranians have been attempting to entrench Hezbollah units and bases along the Syrian-Israeli border, opening up yet another front. Israel has engaged in over 100 aerial campaigns to prevent the importation of Iranian weapons. 
especially guided missile systems. And the Iranians have felt the pinch. They've largely ceased using the Damascus airport to unload military hardware, troop reinforcements, and military advisors. They're now primarily using the airport in Aleppo in the north because of Israeli threats. But the Russians may be the spoiler on the Syrian-Iranian front. Vladimir Putin has recently visited Iran, where he spoke with all the top leadership. They literally rolled out the red carpet for him. Since the Ukrainian war, relations between Israel and Russia have deteriorated, while Putin recently declared that Iran was Russia's most significant bilateral relationship. The Russians currently have air supremacy over Syria, where they have worked in tandem with Hezbollah ground troops. It's only because of Iran and Russia that the Assad regime was able to survive the punishing civil war at all. Israel had entered into something called a deconfliction protocol with the Russians, where Israeli security concerns were taken into account. As long as Israel alerted the Russian Air Force, it was able to attack Iranian targets in the country that it saw as threatening. Once again, the primary concern was the importation of guided missile systems. But the days of Russian-Israeli cooperation with the deconfliction protocols are seemingly coming to an end. Russia has decided to procure massive numbers of Iranian drones, and Russian soldiers are currently training in Iran on these technologies as we speak. In a reversal of roles for the world's second largest weapons exporter, Iran provides Russia with weaponry today and has enthusiastically supported its war in Ukraine. Israel, on the other hand, is a staunch American ally. While it is not currently supporting Ukraine militarily, it has condemned Russia's invasion. Acting Prime Minister Yair Lapid has been particularly vocal in this criticism. This presents an ongoing problem for the future. And all of this must be considered in light of Iran's continued progress towards the acquisition of nuclear weapons. The negotiations for a renewed Iran deal are continuing apace. And Iran has already admitted that it has stepped up centrifuges with the capacity to create fissile material necessary for the construction of an Iranian nuclear weapon. This is, of course, Israel's nightmare scenario. It is also a nightmare scenario for much of the world, especially much of the Arab world. Even if Iran does not launch nuclear weapons against its enemies, and Israel and the U.S. are on the top of that enemy list, consider the implications of a nuclear Iran. A fear of nuclear reprisal would embolden Iran's many regional proxies. Nuclear saber-rattling would embolden those proxies and limit military responses considerably. With these ultimate weapons at their disposal, these proxies would be able to act with impunity underneath a nuclear umbrella. As far as I can gather, the only silver lining to the very dark Iranian cloud has been the budding alliance between Israel and the Arab countries of the Gulf. Thank you for your support of Israel Week in Review. We hope you enjoyed this deep dive. Here you can gain valuable insight into the events shaping Israel, the Middle East, and the broader world. We would appreciate it if you would give consideration to the support of our sponsors. Their support makes this program possible. This program is supported by Cleveland Jewish Funerals. Cleveland Jewish Funerals is the only Jewish-owned and operated Jewish funeral home in Cleveland. They're not owned by a publicly traded company listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Rather, they're an independently owned Jewish business committed to the mitzvah of kfura, Jewish burial with dignity. Cleveland Jewish Funerals works with all segments of the Jewish community, including the Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, and the Unaffiliated. In addition to my work here at Israel Week in Review, I'm also a pre-planning specialist for Cleveland Jewish Funerals. 
Pre-planning is a tremendous act of chesed, loving kindness for your surviving family members. Don't saddle your family with the difficulty and stress of planning a funeral on the worst day of their lives. Pre-planning allows families to properly grieve their loved ones. Please remember that pre-planning is a remarkable gift for your family. Relieve their burden on the worst day of their lives. Avoid emotional overspending. Lock in prices during this time of runaway inflation and plan a funeral that aligns with your faith and values. Remember that Cleveland Jewish Funerals works with all segments of the Jewish community. To learn more about pre-planning, contact me, Ben Ronsman, at 833-216-PLAN or 833-216-7526. See how affordable pre-planning options can be and prepare for one of the few things in life that are truly unavoidable.